This episode contains discussions around death, racism, and abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club. This is the book club episode. The episode format is split into three sections. We start at the front cover, where we talk about our first impressions and expectations. Then we delve into the actual book and finally end at the back, where we focus on our reflections and takeaways. This month, we're discussing Clearing the Plains by James Dashuk. I chose this book as I wanted to understand how disease had spread historically and erased indigenous groups in North America. I also wanted to compare how pandemics had affected vulnerable communities in the past and present. It's no secret that Canada has a global reputation for being friendly, liberal and pretty wholesome. And with smiley Justin Trudeau for president, not many know about Canada's dark history. In recent years, however, Canadians have had to reckon with it, especially as countless graves of Indigenous children have been found buried on the lands of residential schools. The research in Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation and the Loss of Aboriginal Life presents an intricate examination of how European traders cleared Canada's plains coldly and opportunistically, taking advantage of famines, disease and the loss of biodiversity wiping out Indigenous populations. First Nations people were willfully manipulated, forcibly removed and essentially murdered for the sake of European trade and settlement in Canada. The author draws a direct line connecting the 19th century Indian Act, Canada's economic foundation and systemic ethnic cleansing. And it becomes clear how the situations Indigenous communities in Canada face today are the result of a shameful history. Joining me in today's book club are Eduardo da Costa and Hannah Walker-Brown. Eduardo is a curator and art history student and Hannah is the creative director at Broccoli Productions. Now that the intros are done, I really wanted to know if my guests have ever read anything about Indigenous history prior to clearing the plains. Things like sort of social media and even hashtags have done really well in, I guess, democratising that landscape, but also bringing these stories to the forefront. I follow a few. There's like No More Stolen Sisters. There's also basically an epidemic of violence against women in Navajo Nation. Women are going missing and no one's really doing anything about it. So I think, you know, it goes back to this idea of kind of self-governing state. If no one's going to help you, you have to do it yourself. And I think hashtags, Instagram, Twitter, those sorts of things have been really good in allowing this conversation to kind of break through, I guess, the more traditional news cycle. Yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree on the fact that we haven't had so much real coverage, not real and fake, that's a Dichotomy. But in terms of like broadsheet newspapers and also in terms of our traditional media in the UK, I haven't seen enough of that. But I think it goes back to the nature of colonialism and also the nature of not having had a conversation in the UK about our role and the way it still is pertinent today. So mm. Canada had a similar systemic issue 
as did Australia with its schools. And it's not even to try and compare sort of different types of oppression, but it feels like it's more than just a commonality and more of a systemic way of actually Mm -hmm. doing things. It was almost tragic in the way it happened in the sense that some of it was omission and in other parts it was also via willful means. So you have just a cluster of successive events that has led to the situation that we're in today. So I also want to know how much did you know about the way foreign diseases had historically affected Indigenous communities around the world? And did you expect there to be any sort of comparisons between previous epidemics and pandemics to the one we're experiencing right now? I mean, the the thing that instantly comes to mind then is just the kind of disparity between who gets sick and who doesn't, who recovers and who doesn't, who has access to what and who doesn't. And I saw a post by a friend of mine the other day who's a yoga teacher and he had caught covid and he's done kind of years of breath work. He's has nutritionists in the family. He can afford vitamins. He can afford time off work. And he was writing about how it's not an even playing field. And I think that's the thing that comes to mind with this sort of stuff. Like if you don't have access to things like that, if you aren't in that privileged position, then you die. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is... I, I guess poverty, yes. Also, what is being given to you, what is available to you. And again, this book is heartbreaking in that sense of what was kind of being taken away, what was being kind of given. I think at one point he says they had less food than prisoners in Siberia, which is just like absolutely astonishing. So I think that's the big thing is the, the disparity between who survives and who doesn't and whether that is self-inflicted or if that decision is already made for you. Dasha, he gives us evidence that a lot of these indigenous communities were in peak physical condition and were far healthier than these European, you know, traders and settlers who came. I totally agree with you there in terms of like the disparities of who survives and who doesn't and how it's far more socioeconomic than anything else, really. What I thought was really interesting as well was... During the COVID-19 pandemic, the one thing that we felt couldn't stop was commerce. Otherwise, entire industries will fail. And essentially, the economy was one of the most important things. However, I just thought it was really fascinating how when the European traders and settlers came, most of the diseases were just spread because of that need for trade and that need for extraction and that need to sell things that originally were within the ecosystem of these different indigenous communities and so when I was reading it I was like wow isn't it amazing that all of this happened because there was this need for these companies that were established within North America to sell produce and Eduardo did you have any thoughts? So I remember the story of the smallpox blanket quite vividly in North America. So people were dying of smallpox and they had lesions on their bodies. If you don't know what it looks like, it's gruesome. What they did was they would take away the clothes of these people and leave them at like church shelters and all sorts of other places. So you're going there looking for comfort. You're going there looking for food. You're going there looking for the basics. 
and what you're being given is death. What I didn't know was how insidious the whole business of the blankets was, the fact that there was omission and there was also real lack of understanding of basic hygiene. You'd expect the Victorians and their forefathers to have been a little bit more clean in the way that they envisaged the world and the way that they were thinking about things. Because I know that there was an awareness that this and this together would spread that. But I don't think cause and effect was as clear, which I think the book does a really good job of mentioning. Because at some point, that it's not clear who is the state in that region, who has mandate and who doesn't. So you're, you're left in the place where you're blaming merchants. And merchants are mercantile in their nature. They have a will to trade. So in terms of diseases, I think we also need to remember what capitalism does, which is a point that we skirted around in the way in which capitalism is not a thinking machine, but it can produce these results that are ultra-violent. So just bringing it forward to what's going on today and legacies of this ultra-violence performed on the indigenous Canadians, it's clear to see that it's not going to be dealt with within a generation because Canada has one of the best life expectancies in terms of people who have the settler nation that has settled there. But the disparity between the settler nation and the indigenous, it's staggering. I think they would be down to number 65 if they had included the First Nations peoples in their data. So there's also the skewed data set model as a basis for our understanding of pandemics. Uh, So much more of that could be said. Yeah, I think you're so right. And in terms of, you know, how can we make things right? And, you know, I say that in quote marks because it's very hard to make things right when the economic system that we live under, which is capitalism, has been established through that violent history. So it's like, how do you undo that history when the foundations of the world we're living in today had been set all the way back then? You know, how do you basically rip out the foundations? To do that, the first step is to do a lot of learning and unlearning. They have to be on the curriculum, I believe. That's why I'm so glad we've decided to read this book. But Yora, it's also incumbent that we don't secede state narrative in this because if we allow it to just be left to the individual to i don't know in their 20s and their 30s to learn these things and not have it in the curriculum as you said you end up with the skewed situation that we do have when people gaslight and misunderstand because they've not been Mm. taught these histories so they feel like it's all new it's all alien to to the cognitive dissonance that is displayed Let's delve into the book itself. I asked Hannah and Eduardo what their emotions were while reading this text. What sort of emotions did you go through when reading this book? I did find parts of it utterly heartbreaking. And I guess that was part due to my naivety of what happened, of what went on. You know, even now, like you said, relearning things that you didn't know before. I think there is kind of an element of trauma within that. You don't have all the information and you find it out. And it's almost like, I wouldn't say grief, that sounds quite dramatic, but 
I think you definitely feel a responsibility. I guess what was slightly tricky with this, like the language is very academic, very, very informative, which I do think doesn't create a barrier, but it stops you being overly emotional about something. But I don't think you could read that book and not feel anything. And shock, I think, again, perhaps naivety, but just the extent of it. And actually, the thing that really will stay with me is how bad it still is. The fact that there still isn't water in a lot of these places. I think it's those things, the fact that you go through all of this and it's still not better. I think that was the thing that will stay with me. But yeah, I don't want to kind of do the work a disservice because I think it's an exceptional body of work by saying, you know, it made me very sad or do you know what I mean? But, you know, I think I did feel everything, outraged, shock, heartbroken, but at the same time informed, like very informed. So, yeah, it's quite a difficult one to navigate, I think. And Eduardo, what sort of emotions did you go through when reading this book? A panoply of emotions, you know. James Dashuk has done a really interesting job in presenting the record and putting it right to an extent without leaning towards bombast and, and other tools that could be quite easy to lean into when discussing ultraviolence in this way. I've been reading recently on the way in which the Benin bronzes were extricated at a similar time and the violence used in their extrication. And it always begets to understand that all of this stuff has happened because of a combination of political factors turning environmental. So the fact that the furs were so coveted created a situation in which you had the wiping out of a whole people because they engaged in its trade as you would. So they engaged in the trade, but they didn't engage in the trade of, of beavers sometimes. And they were forced to, by means of alcoholism, sort of similar to what happened with China and opium. So these are tactics that were systemically used at the time and then turned environmental, which is a point that Hannah made about the fact that there still isn't water there and that diseases have become endemic to those societies by nature of their social economic degradation. So I felt more roundly a profound sense of loss. It was almost like how I felt when I discovered elements of post-colonial literatures, someone like Fanon and the way in which they conceived the world at the time. I read it twice because <laughs> it kind of distilled in my head certain thoughts I've been having, and especially the environmental side of it, along with the human, the creation of things like natural park reserves and stuff like that, where there's no people around, which is completely unnatural for the sustenance of those environments. Yeah, wow, thank you so much. I think those were both really comprehensive summaries of the emotions that, yeah, you must have felt when reading this book. For me, I found this quite hard in terms of the information because I had zero knowledge to go on. I think I found it really confusing in terms of just like all the different places and names of the tribes and just understanding who was where, the logistics of it. So the first couple of chapters, I was not that emotional because I was just trying to understand the picture also within the way he writes about it, it's very matter of fact. 
he's just telling the story, but it is when there's a sort of like a power dynamic shift between who has the power and who doesn't have the power. And then you start seeing, you know, for example, the Indian Act, which was brought in to completely marginalize the First Nations communities in, you know, lots of places. And just when you start seeing how it started coming into like law, that's when I was like, it was so emotional. It was so upsetting and shocking. And I just thought, just disbelief, really. You know, Hannah, you said you found it shocking too. So I want to know, what was the most shocking thing that you think you read? Um, I guess the water I found shocking, like weaponizing food, like deliberately making a decision to starve people. And I think when we talk about like history or laws, I think often it's a blanket statement and what we forget to interrogate is the people behind those decisions that mean we have that history or, you know, we have that law. We do a lot with the media, you know, we think of the media as like the media, but we don't kind of ever unpack those chain of people that have made that decision in order to do whatever thing they've done or report on whatever story. So I think that was really important here. It was like people, like who is making these decisions? And I guess in kind of history, we think of, super villains like you know Hitler kind of the ones that are quite I'm not going to say glamorous but they're the ones that we kind of you know they're constantly made into films or books or they're constantly in the discourse but actually I think what's more shocking to me are these people that sort of go under the radar or they're not brought up in literature they certainly don't penetrate the mainstream but what they've done is this what this book does so I think that for me was most shocking I mean everything <laughs> everything yeah. was shocking and just to add to that as well and what I thought was just so extremely well done by James Dashuk was that he also included a lot of the environmental factors that affected these communities and you know the droughts and the cold spells and even like you know the volcano eruption of course that was like in itself a natural thing but how man clearing these plains and the loss of biodiversity had meant that any of those external factors had created a far more destabilizing life. And, you know, we're seeing that today, the loss of biodiversity, there is a direct link to even the spread of pandemic. So I thought that was definitely something I was thinking about when I was reading this book. And Eduardo, what did you want to say? Well, in terms of shocking things, there's a lot to be said, you know. The fact that these, uh, it became a pattern of behaviour. I think what I feel like is really sort of under-evaluated is that symbiotic relationship that Diora mentioned between the environment and its people and how we also have been decoupled from our environment by modernity and the onset of modernity uh, and our fetishism for things have created a more imperfect playing field. So the way in which the planes were cleared of people via omission and also via direct intervention was the thing that shocked me the most. For example, the introduction of bovine tuberculosis. It wasn't accidental because from what I read previously, the buffalo was systematically wiped out in certain areas in order to stop the north to south migrations of 
the species throughout that territory. So this is the thing, because there's always a first cause for these things. And that's the problem, because the first cause of it was in order to impact the First Nation people and their way of life. If you kill this big totemic animal, and even for those who at the time were sort of more agrarian in, in their way of thinking, you know, they introduced alcoholism and all sorts of other things. And it just kept on coming up again, just a, a pattern of behavior that started off by things going off sort of naturally as a result of something else. And then that being seized upon to create even greater hardship, like stores of food being rationed out for sexual favors and all sorts of other really horrible things and starvation upon starvation. So it just goes on and on and on. So we've thoroughly discussed clearing the plains and have reached the back cover. I asked Hannah and Eduardo what their reflections are and what they've taken away from the book. Has this book changed your opinion on Canada's worldwide reputation? Yeah, I mean, I guess like the problem with, you know, secrets is that obviously you don't know something until you know something. So I guess it doesn't sort of surprise me in any way because, you know, you just have to look at, again, who is writing history books, who is making decisions, who decides what goes on the curriculum, who decides what texts are allowed. You know, books are still being banned now, today. I mean, a book we did on this show was banned in America because of its representation of domestic violence, you know. So still people are calling these shots. So it doesn't surprise me in any way. And I think that is just innate in Western culture, like the <laughs> the arrogance of it. And I think there's a bitter irony and a sadness in how much could have been learned from First Nations people, from Indigenous people. Like we're seeing it now in terms of the environment, but also in terms of community living and isolation, I think, really exacerbated that, especially if you're in a city and actually realising how lonely and isolating and actually detrimental that kind of very fast modern living is to all of us. Whereas actually, you know, if we had maybe paid some attention to, you know, self-governing tribes, everyone looking out for each other, building those foundations that are actually integral to our survival, the irony is (laughs) we went in and we destroyed all of that and we think we know best and actually it's just end up in destruction time and time again. Yeah. And Eduardo, I'm guessing you knew that the narratives that we know about Canada and maple syrup and everyone being friendly, <laughs> like, you know. Um... Was a complete and utter fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you have epistemic racism, like you have in sort of North American nations and the omission of such from an epistemic base, you have to look at the nature of the state. The nature of the Canadian state is settlist colonialist. And with that, I can't say that I'm surprised that it happened because settler colonial states are inherently violent in their inception, in their continuation, and in their narrativizing of their stories. It's almost a dichotomy where you have a whole nation 
that is probably around 30 million people living in a very thin strip of land around the border. So it's kind of mirroring what happened in the past. And you have all of this other land that is kind of just left its own devices because the peaceful nature of of the land comes at a cost because there were actually people there previously. That's what we need to remember. And the numbers are stark. I think every single page is almost like a stab in the heart for anyone who's a bleeding heart liberal that thinks that, you know, things will just better themselves and we can't intervene and so on and so forth. Whereas, you know, intervention has always been the aim of the game, hasn't it? Yeah, and that trickle-down economy will save everyone and trickle to everyone. Yeah, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't, no. We need to get out of this sort of a pattern of thinking that those two cannot mutually coexist and you have to acknowledge both parts, you know, and I think it doesn't matter if it's better now or if things are getting better now. Obviously, it's important, but I think there has to be an acknowledgement and awareness of that other side, of that cost, if you are going to talk about the other stuff. It's also not down to us to decide whether things are better now because, yeah, totally. unless you're from those communities... We have no say in whether things are better now. And I think that's something I struggle with a lot when we're talking about various issues. And I think, again, just goes back to the point of whose voices do we hear and whose voices should we continue to platform and follow? Um, Can the Sebastian speak? (laughs) No, 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 they can't. Our histories are not written by people that look like us and are always written by the supposed victor. And again, at what cost? Whose victory are we really celebrating when our planet is literally dying? Who do you think, if you could recommend this book to? I mean, I feel everyone should read it. It should be on the curriculum. How do we get it to the curriculum? (laughs) Who do we need to email? Um, Whoever deals with that, those people, I'd get it to them ASAP. It's funny you say that because thinking back on my experience of history, I would give this book to my form tutor slash ex-history teacher when she taught me the history of North America omitted a lot of details and I'm now feeling like she needs a refresher because (laughs) she may have decided to, um, how can I put it, save herself blushes rather than confront the truth. That's who I would get to. Thanks to Eduardo and Hannah for contributing to this episode. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Educated by Tara Westover. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenotes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at The Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jaja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Rob Fincham. This is a Broccoli Production.